Welcome to the Litigation Psychology Podcast brought to you by Courtroom Sciences, Dr. Steve Wood. Exciting uh, topic coming up today. I always enjoy talking about this and who better to join me and to talk about social media in the courtroom is Sean Murphy. Sean is a practice leader of the CSI Critical Communications Department and Sean and I have written on social media before. So Sean, how are you? How are you doing today, Steve? Thanks for having me. I'm good. And then Brent Terman. Brent Terman is from Bell Nunnally. Brent's been on the podcast a few times too. I always enjoy talking to Brent because he always brings a different twist to, to the topics because Brent, you do a lot of entertainment law and a lot of things in, in the media uh, and you, you you rub elbows with a lot of people in the media. Um, so you're always fun to have on as far as getting your opinion. So how are you today? Doing great. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and like I said, today I want to talk about social media social media in the courtroom, social media outside the courtroom, and just really dive deep into all the different factors that are going on with social media and how that plays out, you know, but I want to talk about first and foremost, this kind of grew out of a conversation Sean and I had about cameras in the courtroom, you know, and Sean, I want you to talk a little bit about the Trump and Trump's recent litigation that's going on and kind of the battle that's been going on as cameras in the courtroom and really talk a little bit about advantages, disadvantages, who wants them, who doesn't, and just dive into that. Sure. Well, I mean, there's a, a state case in Georgia where cameras are allowed. So it's going to happen there once that trial occurs. Um, the debate is occurring in the, right now in terms of the federal trials that he's facing and uh, the one in Washington where he's saying, uh, where well, the federal rules are you can't have cameras in the in the courtroom. Uh, there have been prominent prosecutors, uh, Neil Katyal, um, Andrew Weissman, calling for cameras in the in the uh, courtroom. You know, saying that the rules should be changed for this because there needs to be daylight around this trial so that people can see the evidence for themselves, right, and and see the truth uh, firsthand. Um, Trump recently got on board with that, and his team filed a. Um, uh, their own papers to uh, have that, that trial televised. And he's saying in his rallies that he wants, you know, he wants them televised too. But I think what you have here is two, def two different sets of objectives. I think on the one hand, you've got uh, good and well-intentioned prosecutors who think that, you know, if people will objectively look at this evidence and arrive at, you know, the same conclusion that they expect a, a fair jury to arrive at. Uh, what they're not taking into account is, I think, several things. One is Trump's ability to manipulate public opinion. And you see how he's doing this in his New York case. He shows up for trial on the days when he wants to change the headline, right? When he wants the stories to be about his statement or his conduct in the courtroom or anything but the evidence that's being presented that day. So even without a camera in the courtroom, you know, he's very skilled at um, managing the media around what's going on with his trial. With cameras in the courtroom, you still have that. Plus, you have the situation where, um, you know, uh, two, I would say, people with biases can hear the same information and hear it in a way that confirms their bias, right? So it's not an objective jury that will be watching. It's People who, an army of people, and particularly in his case, who are already biased to his point of view and, and his position. And they're going to look for evidence and they're going to cherry pick evidence uh, that uh, supports that 
and use that and all of the channels that they have in social media um, to, to make that seem like that's the story, that that's the evidence. Now, Trump himself is saying, yeah, let's, let's have cameras in the courtroom because I want the light of day and all of that. But I think what he realizes is that it's not going to happen, that, you know, it'd be unprecedented for cameras to be in a federal courtroom. So what he is putting in the question is then the fairness of the process. Will justice be done? And so that I think is what, what's happening there. It's like, it's gamesmanship around having cameras in the courtroom and no matter what happens, cameras or not, there's going to be a litigation communication strategy to make sure that the court of public opinion is being influenced in one way. Yeah, I think that's interesting. You know, talking about we had talked before about the Brian Koberger case uh, out of the out of Idaho, where he's currently on trial for for four murders. And one of the things, the battles that's being fought right now is prosecution, defense don't want cameras in the courtroom. Media kind of wants cameras in the courtroom because they want the First Amendment right to be able to show it, to show what's going on in there. And then the judge is kind of begrudgingly keeping the cameras in the courtroom, but he's upset with the way stuff is being used in social media. You know, and that goes to your point, I think, Sean, about how things can be cut and used and misconstrued or used in a certain way to build around a base. You know, Brent, I want to talk to you a little bit about, I mean, you've had, I think you've had some experiences before where you've had cases that almost got cameras in the courtroom of you've had experiences. What has been, what's been your experience with cameras in the courtroom, trying to defend a case with that kind of looming over you? So a couple of things, even if you don't have cameras in the courtroom, a lot of times, depending on who you represent, whether it's a prominent figure, a prominent company, a team, anything like that, there are eyeballs on you, right? When you file something with the district clerk and it goes up there on Pacer, people see it. It is part of the media. And so that's part of the strategy. Whether you have cameras physically on you or not, you know people are watching. And you may also, you said we talked earlier, have those two wars, right? The public opinion and then obviously the, the legal issues, right? Sometimes the public opinion is very important for that client, that client's bottom line, their well-being, their business, right? And so a lot of times, there are times where you're going to include language, include phrases, include arguments in your motion that you think might get picked up by the media. You think tell the story. And it may not be the things that are crucially legally necessary for that particular motion, but you want to make sure they get in there. And, and then with the, we, we dodged uh, cameras in the media one, uh, we talked about it before the Fifty Shades of Grey case, where we strategically decided to go under the radar, and it would have been a spectacle. Um, but it was actually happened. The trial happened the same week as the Chris Kyle American Sniper trial as well. So all eyes were over there, and we were able to stay under the radar uh, for our clients' benefit. Yeah, I think that's interesting that you bring up about just the fact that you know that the petitions or complaints, the documentation might get out into the public sphere that you have to actually have to put some thought behind, Hey, if this gets out, if this, what is this going to look like on Twitter or X or social mm -hmm. media and just in general, right? Yeah. You got to think about what's going to be in the sports business journal the next day or whatever the, the appropriate trade is definitely that needs to be a consideration and you're not fully serving your clients. If you aren't thinking about that, you know, and I don't want to delve too much and, and rehash kind of the, the Amber heard Johnny Depp thing, but Sean, I do want to kick it over to you. And I do want to get your opinion, Brent on, some of this, how the media can play an influence. You know, I want to touch a kind of high level on it because I know we've done a podcast before about it, but just kind of how not only necessarily the media 
leading up to it, but what's going on during the trial and what's going on as far as how things are being positioned and, you know, one side versus the other and how they're positioning that. Yeah, so I think what we saw in that trial is that, um, you know, Johnny Depp's team came fully prepared to use all of the levers that were available to them to manage public opinion around that trial. So, um, you know, we've seen retrospective reports, for example, uh, one done by um, Bot Sentinel that um, women who tweeted in support of Amber were attacked relentlessly. Twitter trolls would swarm the, the tweets of women who tweeted positively about Amber Heard and often used vulgar and threatening language. So there you saw, um, because that trial was televised and because they had clips to use, uh, you saw um, certain testimony being highlighted and other testimony being pushed aside uh, so that people wouldn't see it, right? And so, you know, with a very savvy social media strategy, you know, Depp's team was able to um, really uh, influence the court of public opinion. And when you look at uh, how influential social media is, I mean, Pew released a report yesterday that said that a third of adults between 18 and 29 um, get their news from TikTok. So that's, a, you know, that's a platform that uses you know, that relies on video, right? Um, other platforms like X and Facebook are down in terms of um, who gets the news from there, but it's still a substantial number, number of people. So, you know, the issue there was in the depth trials that he was on the offense, she was always on the defense. And it's like they were prepared on a day-to-day, hand-to-hand combat basis uh, to put out the videos that supported, you know, his position, his point of view, and depositioned her, you know, kind of paint him uh, more positively and pick out all the negative things that, you know, occurred at her end on the trial and highlighting them to deflect from the negative testimony about him. Because if actually you look at the testimony about both of it, none of it's flattering, right? Yet, nonetheless, he came out of it, you know, with his career somewhat you know, resuscitated and revived. And, you know, she had to, she had to take a lower profile for a period of time. So um, a lot, you know, in that, in that case, as Brent is indicating, you're talking about two public figures who uh, whose livelihood relies on their reputation, right? And their brand. Yeah, Brent. And like I said, that, that was an interesting case. I know there's been tons of podcasts on it. There's even a documentary on on that. And even in that documentary, they touch a lot on the social media portion. You know, now everybody's become really savvy as far as true, true crime podcasts, true crime documentaries, you know, so you have a lot of well-informed, well-intended people, but I think it goes back to what Sean had said too, is even these well-informed, well-intent people that watched the whole trial were very, very pro Johnny and very, very anti Amber. But I think it goes back to what, what Sean talks about is there was this kind of narrative of you, if you, if you said anything positive towards Amber, you were going to get shot down or you were going to get harassed. So I think a lot of people said, I don't want any part of that. So they just kind of stay out of it. But I guess I just kind of, from an attorney's perspective, thinking about being in a situation like that, I mean, is those, those are the things that you have to consider or those are the things that you're thinking about 
you know, as you're progressing through trial, I mean, I know you're focusing on the trial, you're focusing on other things, but what is it you're also having to put back and, you know, how do you handle that social media as you're trying to focus on the case, but you also got to focus on the other stuff? Yeah, you don't want it to be a distraction. And a lot of things were definitely sensationalized here. I know, I don't know about your feeds. I saw a lot of poop emojis. I saw a lot of people talking about mega pints. I saw a lot, a lot of people imitating her, talking about her dog getting stung by a bee over and over yeah. and over. But with that, it's important to think about, I mean, the, the, the judge, you know, they had their instructions and they're always followed. You know, for example, one witness, one fact witness couldn't testify because she had been watching clips and summaries online leading up to it. You know, with the rule, a fact witness can't be observing other testimony for you think reasons why that rule is there, right? Yeah. Um, on top of that, too, it's important to remember, uh, I don't want to make it selfish about the attorneys, but you are always on camera, right? I, I, I learned from a young age, the jury is always looking at you. When the other side is scoring points on cross-examination, you aren't vigorously taking notes and scrambling, like, how am I going to respond to this? You're being cool, calm, collected. You might even act like nothing's going on, and you're maybe a little bored, right? Still respectful, but bored. And then also, it was very important. Uh, uh, one thing, so I was on a panel last year with Chanley Painter from Court TV, who is amazing, by the way. And, and she said, she talked to the jurors afterwards, and their impression of the attorneys was really interesting. On Amber Heard's side, it was cold. It felt like nobody liked each other. And on Johnny Depp's side, you could feel the chemistry. They were happy to be in each other's presence. Like, you don't want to be too jokey. You need to take it, don't take it lightly. But you could tell they enjoyed being around each other and they liked their client. All of those things play into it. And all those things too were highlighted on social media as well. I know some of those celebrities, some of those attorneys became celebrities after that case. And that's what always fascinates me. I mean, depending on the case, you know, I told you before we got on, I actually have court TV on in the background watching another case uh, with Chanley Painter on actually. But I mean, I think it's interesting on some of these cases that sometimes the attorneys are the focal point or they get, you know, they get focus and visibility and then other ones they don't. But I think, you know, that is another interesting thing that I see is sometimes the attorneys just get as much FaceTime as what the clients do, you know? So I think it goes back to your point is always understanding that you're going to be on camera and that you could become part of it as well, part of the conversation. And to your point, some of these, you know, like Jose Baez and those from other cases are now become commentators on different law programs based upon their trials and the, the media attention that it yeah. got. So, you know, I think always thinking about that, you know, but yeah. I, I want to go ahead, Sean. Well, I was going to say that, you know, in, in her case, we talked about, I think before what, what went wrong, but just a, one point about what she might have done. You know, I read subsequent to the case that a lot of the evidence that was allowed in her UK case was not allowed in this, in the US case. And to the extent that it was, you know, allowable by law, let's say, you know, um, a strategy for her would be to put out that evidence in social media and other settings um, to get that side of the story out. If she couldn't introduce it in the courtroom, as long as there was no, you know, issue legally, she could have introduced it into the court of public opinion and influenced back, right? Had something to push back with. And I think that's interesting. That's a good segue into what I want to talk about. Um, we'll start with Brent on this one, but we're talking about documentaries. So there was an Amber Heard, there was a Johnny Depp Amber Heard documentary that was that was out that talked a lot about social media. Then at the tail end of that, you know, there was discussion about some additional information that the jurors didn't see, which 
would have changed the perceptions, you know, but I want to, you know, there's, there's several documentaries out there now, you know, we had just talked that there, take care of Maya, that the Maya Kowalski case had just now finished uh, with a $261 million verdict, 211 in compensatories and 50 million in punitives. And it, there was a documentary on that. You know, I want to talk a little bit about how these documentaries sometimes can, can spin narratives as well too, that, Maybe you're not getting the full piece of the puzzle that you didn't get in the trial, but what it's doing though is in kind of enraging or educating people, but in a more biased view. So Brent, Brent I want to talk a little bit about that documentary and kind of what your thoughts are. Yeah, definitely. And so I, I saw that documentary recently uh, and, and with it, my first career was in film and television. I know the power of a camera. I know the power of being the editor. There's probably more power there. Right. And so you give me, for example, uh, direct examination, cross-examination. I can make a 30-second clip making that person look like an angel or a devil. Right. It all depends on what I want it to look like. So here we're talking about documentaries. A lot of times they're biased. Yeah, they are. Maybe that's on the viewer for assuming they're not going to be. You assume it's just, you know, news because it's a documentary, not a narrative feature. Right. But with that, a filmmaker has his or her vision and they are putting it out there. Right. And so I, I think um, for these, obviously, there was a purpose for creating that documentary and there was a narrative and there was a message filmmakers wanted to get out there. And I think they did. It's it's a gut wrenching film. Again, I saw it last week when, when, when you brought it to my attention. I heard it before. I hadn't seen it yet. It is a gut wrenching film and it'd be hard to uh, leave watching that and have your opinion be right down the middle. Yeah. And Sean, I mean, what, are, what we talk about how potential jurors and whether or not they've seen things ahead of time or whether or not they've seen tweets and posts and they, you know, they're instructed to not look at any of those things. But I mean, from a realistic perspective, from a communications perspective, what kind of your thoughts on whether or not you can stay away from those or be, be open-minded after seeing any of that stuff? Well, as we know, they're not supposed to, right? <clears throat> but um, we are inundated with information everywhere we go. And, um, you know, people um, have their favorite sources of information. And also, it's not just what they may see directly. It's the people who they interact with and what they're seeing and what they're saying to them and the influence that others in their circle may have on them. So it is critically important uh, to manage perceptions in the court of public opinion to at least play for a tie. You know, <clears throat> if you want that kind of neutral environment that's ideal for a trial. Um, so it's it's critically important. And that, that's why you have to have a litigation communication strategy as part of your trial strategy, especially in a high profile case. You don't yeah. want to leave it to chance. No, and I think it's important, you know, and I don't want to push blame towards the defense on, you know, from Johns Hopkins on that case. Though. I mean, I guess the question is, Sean going off, you know, put you on the spot here a little bit. I mean, what are your thoughts as far as whether, you know, if you know that documentary is out there and you know, people have seen it, you know, people have gotten opinions now and they're very strong because if like to, to what Brent said, you can't watch that and not be pissed off at the hospital. But if you watch the trial, there's a lot more nuance to it. There's a lot more information to it. That's not necessarily portrayed in the documentary. So how do you handle that? I mean, is that something that you say, we know there's a documentary out there that doesn't shine a good light on us. Should we try to add additional uh, information or should we just say, let's not worry about it and move forward and hope 
that's not influential because jurors aren't supposed to see it anyway. And anybody who would have saw the documentary is never making it on the panel. Right. And so I think that uh, in that case, I mean, in terms of the trial itself, you know, like you said, you know, who makes it onto the panel? But I think you might have, in case you need it, a strategy around depositioning the documentary, you know, making it uh, positioning it as being biased and why it's biased and what information is missing from there, calling it into question. Uh, if it becomes, you know, a point of contention, if it becomes something that is critical to your case, yeah, you need a strategy around that and it's possible to do that. So it's all about positioning yourself and depositioning the other, right? And so that's the opportunity. And if you uh, have a legitimate case and you can poke holes in the documentary or show where it's biased, then you should be prepared to do that. And I think that's, that's a good thing. And I don't know if either one of you have watched uh, Making a Murderer the maker murder of a documentary that was popular probably, I don't know, five years ago or so, you know, that about Stephen Avery and how everyone is justice for Stephen Avery. And, and the thing going back to your point, Brent, about how things can be cut to really look biased one way or the other. I mean, I'll admit after watching that, I thought he was completely set up. He was completely innocent and all this, but then you have going back to what Sean was talking about, you have what's called convicting a murderer, which is out on daily wire um, that Candace Owens produced or edited or whatever she ended up doing. Um, she had her involvement in there. Um, but she presents more of uh, the other side or more of a fuller picture of evidence that was left out of the documentary evidence that wasn't necessarily presented in the documentary. And I got to tell you, after watching that, my opinion of whether or not he's guilty has changed, um, I think, but it's going back to a point where you have this really skewed narrative. And then when you get more piece to the puzzle, now you have a more fuller picture. Now you can make a decision and if you still look at it and say he he's innocent, then fine. But at least you've looked at both sides versus just having it be biased one way or the other. Yeah, I think part of the issue is that the word documentary implies fairness, right? It implies that there's been you know a team of investigators who have done their due diligence and have unearthed information that's you know very viable and that people should hear and that it's fair and that it takes into account <clears throat> both sides, right? But uh, that's why, you know, you start by saying that's not a documentary, right? It's a, it is a, it's an opinion piece. Uh, and then explain why. And it, yeah, and I think it goes back, you know, talking about, you know, when in, when in the court of public opinion, you know, Brent, we had talked about, you know, Mike Lindell's deposition about when, it, you know, when you win the court of public opinion versus whether or not you win the case. I want you to talk a little bit about how as an attorney, you have to kind of balance those types of things too, because in your mind, you're thinking, oh my gosh, please stop. But in, in his mind, he's probably thinking, no, this is what I have to do to protect my brand. In his mind, he wants you to know that those pillows are not lumpy, right? That's right. I'll call he them wants lumpy to know. <laughs> So with it, yeah, um, as an attorney, I, I don't like for my uh, clients to act in that manner when they're being deposed. If you haven't seen the footage, I would encourage you to go look at it on YouTube Amazing. or yeah whatever social media you want to see. It's entertaining for sure. But he was defending his company, right? He was defending the brand and the company. And I think for the people who are already on his side, it's like a rallying cry, right? It's like, yes, stand up for him. Stand up for yourself. And so again, it's, it's different because I come from a different place. I'm going to view his conduct there and his deposition testimony differently than who I think his intended audience was. I think they're going to like it. Yeah. And I think that's another thing too, is where you think about intended audience and you could go back to Trump and it can go back to 
to a lot of other people about, it's not necessarily about winning the legal case. It's about protecting the brand. Um, but I think it also can be dangerous though. I don't think we, you know, it's a slippery slope, Brent, though, when you agree into getting to normal everyday fact witnesses or, you know, 30 B six that aren't going to go out on social media that aren't well known, like M Mike Lindell to feel like they have to go in and try to defend and do the exact same thing too, because it's a different area. hundred percent. And even when it is time to, you know, defend yourself in the, uh, the public battle, right. Legal needs to be primary, right. That needs to be number one. Uh, and so that's the way I always operate. And, and to the extent that we are able to, without hurting our legal position. Yeah. Let's get the story out there. Yeah. Sean, what are your thoughts on that as far as, you know, trying to win the battle, but you lose the the legal battle, but you win the, the public battle? Right. So I think Brent is right. I mean, first, that any litigation communication strategy is supposed to support the trial strategy, right? It's supposed to amplify the trial strategy and the messaging for the trial. Um, my fear is that, you know, people taking a look at the conduct and behavior of, of some of these people, uh, uh, thinking that should become the norm, right? And so, but, but I don't think what they're recognizing is kind of the special circumstance of these people and the situations that they're in. Um, you know, it's been said about Trump that his, his strat he has one strategy basically, that the evidence, you know, when you listen to the prosecutors, right? The ex-prosecutors, the evidence seems to be so overwhelming that his chance at trial is difficult. So his best opportunity is to become president again and make the federal cases at least go away, right? So, you know, he hasn't said that, but, you know, it would seem to be that that's the strategy that's at play right now, right? Because he is playing almost entirely to the court of public opinion. And sometimes it's reported uh, against the advice of his lawyers, right? Uh, so, um, but look at the stakes there. Uh, for the nation, for him, and look at uh, you know, look at his goal. So um, you know, but so that's part of the reason why that's an exceptional case, and that others uh, shouldn't feel that they're going to get the same treatment. I mean, you read uh, and hear day after day that you know his postings are being challenged as you know threatening to witnesses and others. And it's always this caveat, anyone else would be like in jail or anyone else would be suffering some sort of consequence from the judge, right? So um, I think that the, the larger issue is what is the impact on ordinary litigation and people and thinking that this somehow might save them in their situation. And it's just, not, it's just not, there's not many like situations to that. Yeah, agreed. Brent, I'll give you the last word on this too, because I think, you know, you have a unique insight on that is what would be your kind of advice for attorneys who are having to go through these cases that potentially may have exposure, may have cameras, may have a lot of eyeballs on them. I mean, what, how do you, what would you tell them in order to how to approach it? It takes a lot more diligence and a lot more time because again, we talked about it's two battles, right? Normally you have one set of things to think about. You got to make sure those are taken care of and then also go further. When we're thinking about the media. Also, it's going to depend a lot on the temperament of your client, whether he or she can be on good behavior or not, <laughs> and uh, take instruction. They don't always do what we, what we suggest they do. And so it's just 
being more prepared, even more prepared than some of the toughest cases you've had that did not involve that aspect. Yeah, I think that's interesting. Like you said, you have some of them who won't won't take your advice and stuff. I guess you have an uphill battle to try to explain to them about how detrimental it could be to their case, though, for them to be like that, right? And they, maybe it's just a, it goes back to certain individuals where you say, I don't care. It's about protecting my brand, whether or not I lose millions. That's fine because my my perception, my public persona is more important. All depends on how big the the name and the ego is. They, yeah. they, not just the celebrities, some other people who are not in the limelight uh, the right. same way. Well, I think that's another point too, that we don't, we don't, it doesn't necessarily have to be about celebrities. It can be about other CEOs of, of large corporations, right. That may not, may not necessarily be in the headlines, but their, their cases are in the headlines and you know, their, their, their personality and temperaments and stuff too, of, are going to be a little bit strong, almost like the, the, the celebrities and that, and having to deal with those too, but having a game plan to your point, understanding and how it can influence stakeholders, right, Sean? I mean, I think that's one other thing, you know, just to close the loop on that is stakeholders is one other important thing I don't think enough people talk about, right? Especially if you're CEOs and or your heads of organizations that how the the litigation pans out could influence your your business bottom line. Oh, without a doubt. And, you know, a lot of CEOs are unaccustomed to being told no, right? Or to be put in situations where they're challenged. Um, and so, yeah, I think you can get a reaction that undermines your case at times, unless you listen to counsel and are really well prepared, right? Um, because what is at stake? Well, if you're a public company, it's all those institutions that own your company. And many of them are, mo are more forward thinking these days about social issues and other things. And so, you know, they're going to be demanding of you that your, that your company's conduct be you know, exemplary, right? Um, and then there's your employees themselves. Uh, again, in a world where people are getting information from lots of sources, what are they hearing about your company on social media, right? And how does it impact their performance? And what are they saying about your company? You know, are they are they repeating what you hope they would say about the company, or are they buying into a different narrative that is that is damaging to your company? You see a lot of labor unrest these days. You know, a bunch of Starbucks workers walked out on Red Cup Day today, right? Um, because they're dissatisfied with what's going on with that, with, with them and their company. So uh, yes, you have to always take into account the impact of your conduct on your stakeholders and how they're gonna hold you accountable. Brent, do you have to do you have to monitor social media for your clients and stuff as far as not monitor it to make sure they're not doing anything? But I mean, is it is it kind of a night one of the thought of yours to try to keep an eye on what's being said in social media about your clients? We make sure we know what's going on. We don't necessarily tell people or companies how to manage their social right. media, but we we don't we we don't want to get blindsided by something that's out there. And that's more what I meant. Yeah, not necessarily yeah. saying from a legal perspective, don't say this. It's more or less though that you're informed about what the public narrative is being said about your clients, though. Have oh, yeah. to in this day and age, right? Mm-hmm. All right. Well, I can talk for you guys for a little bit longer, but I think I'm going to cut you loose. Uh, I appreciate the conversation. I always enjoy having both of you on because uh, I think you bring definitely different perspectives that I think can be useful for, for the listeners. So once again, Brent Terman, Bell Nunnally, appreciate it. Sean Murphy from Courtroom Sciences for our Critical Communications Department. Appreciate both of you guys. Uh, make sure you go to our website, courtroomsciences.com. All our blogs, posts, everything's up there. Feel free to reach out to any of us. 
if you need to get a hold of any of them, feel free to reach out to me and I can get a hold of them. Um, this has been another edition of the Litigation Psychology Podcast brought to you by Courtroom Sciences.